Hi, welcome to Your Grit Story, where we chat with entrepreneurs, innovators, and leaders who live by passion and perseverance to make the future a reality. Let's be inspired by the stories as you create Your Grit Story. All right, a very warm welcome to Your Grit Story podcast. This is a very special episode where we are going to chat about hot topics like metaverse and NFT and also writing. I've been looking for a guest for the podcast to teach myself and the listeners about what are metaverse, NFT, and what, what drives a person like Dr. Roletta Chen to basically write and go into the world of metaverse. So hi, Loretta. Welcome to the show. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you, Eric. It is my pleasure to have an expert like you in the show, actually, more than an expert. I did my homework on my end as a host, and I realized your background is so diverse. Probably the most diverse guest I ever have in my show. Let me try to capture as many as I can, all right? So you are a professor, an author, creator, artist, director, speaker, trainer, and entrepreneur. (laughs) Did I miss any? I'm also a cat mom to 15 kitty cats. (laughs) That takes up a lot of my time. (laughs) (laughs) Nice, nice, nice. I was thinking for for this particular episode, right? I would actually have to rename this podcast to Your Grit Stories. Because your stories might be worth like, over 10 episodes easily, right? Because you have so many stories and the background is so diverse. You have been through so much. But before we jump into the whole topic of Minerverse, NFT, and the whole passion of writing, tell us more about your journey. Maybe a TikTok version, not a YouTube version? Sure, a TikTok version. I don't, I don't even TikTok. So that's one thing I'm not. I'm not, I'm not a TikToker. So I think, uh, while many people would say that I, I wear many hats and I'm very diverse, actually, fundamentally, if we break down to the essence of what I do, I think I fundamentally do three things. I create. I connect and I communicate. And within those realms, because I knew that those were my core skill sets, I branched out to different industries that allowed me to try out different mediums of expression. So at the start, it was, you know, a live theater and then it branched into branding and marketing, directing for, for brands and then branched into, of course, short film and then branched into uh, publishing, hosting my own radio show. Actually, my own radio show started already in the nineties, right? But I started with Goal 90 FM in the nineties and then Lash 99.5 then into publishing and now into the metaverse. So if you look into my entire trajectory, it really is about creating, connecting, communicating. And what fundamentally fuels me, the themes that fuel me are largely three things, people, purpose, possibilities. So really, I I think about it, just think of me as somebody that creates, connects, communicates, and what drives me, people, purpose, possibilities. Within those realms, you know, a whole range of of tools, mediums that that I feel very blessed to have had the opportunity to, to try out. Yeah. Nice, yeah. Interestingly, well, I guess create, connect, communicate is common with a C. Yeah. And I can see that you, you, your surname is Chen, my surname is Chan. <laughs> I think there's this whole C coming along, right? Five uh, Cs, the Singapore five Cs, where we're, re- we're changing the Singapore five Cs is no longer about cash, condo, condo, credit card, right? Yeah, it's about creation, communication, collaboration, creativity, and connection. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Nice. And people, <laughs> purpose, and possibilities. And that's also yes. why this podcast is around. Really inspire people. Right, to do more and to have purpose in what they are doing. Yeah, you are doing so many things and you have achieved so much. My question is to you is where do you get your energy from and what drives you to do these amazing things? Okay, I think the short version is that I feel very... There's a saying, you know, for those who have been given more, more is expected. I think it really is a mindset that is ingrained with us from our parents. Even from when we're young, we're always taught to be appreciative, to have gratitude. And my parents never... I give all credit to them. They're in their late 80s now, and I always want to give as much credit to them as possible. 
They never raised us to say you must 赚很多钱, make a lot of money. First of all, my mother didn't speak Mandarin, so she wouldn't say 赚很多钱. She only speaks English. So she she always said, be a good person, be a kind person, take care of everyone else. My dad too, you know, just be a good person, make us proud. And so they kind of left my brother Edmund, Eric and I to carve our own careers. But fundamentally, what always drove us was values and you have to be kind and considerate and, and never to make anyone less off in your pursuit. So I think having been raised in that kind of environment, if you looked at all three of us, Edmund, Eric and I, we're all artists, we're all entrepreneurs, we're all creatives. Let's say something about perhaps our DNA, but also say something about our upbringing that's always about serving. So that's one. So that sense of gratitude, I think when you have gratitude, you always feel that you want to give more. We never feel that the world owes us anything. We never feel shortchanged. We never felt that we, we needed to compete in order to get better. We always felt that collaboration would make us better. Maybe again, we came from a family where we had siblings and you know, so that sense of familial camaraderie was very important. So I think the drive, the, the drive factors were definitely my family and, and that sense of gratitude. And I think also maybe family history makes, makes a difference. Uh, my brother was obviously a trailblazer in his own way. You know, he, he carved such a, you know, glorious career in, in the acting scene back in the day. And today he's already in his sixties, but, and he still has a very thriving career. I think that too is very inspiring for me growing up because when you grow up in conservative Singapore, where people would try to talk you out of an artistic career, to have that in my family makes me believe that if you set your mind to it, you can do it, right? Is there hard work? Absolutely. But I think to have role models in your family is really important. And then I think the other experiences growing up would be my own encounters with life. I think it's really important in life to not just you know, celebrate all the glorious moments, you know, the wonderful press releases that you see, you know, the launch events that you see we go to. Those are, you know, the the celebrations we share with the community. But I think what truly shapes any person, any founder, any entrepreneur is always the life lessons, the, the missteps that you've taken. So for me, I think my life-changing moment happened when I was 24. My first partner then suicided, and I'll talk about this very, very openly, because back then, even 20 years ago, I wanted to give a voice to uh, mental health. And I think today, there's just so much more buzz. But I always remember that being a very seminal part of my journey and sharing that very openly because I began to see the world from a different lens. I was a young 24-year-old reading my PhD and then coming so close to, to suicide, recognizing how one's life can be that much shaped by, by their own histories. So as a result, I, I became such a huge proponent for mental health and wellness even back when. And I also became such a big proponent for LGBTQIA for um, being inclusive, diverse, equitable, even before it became a buzzword today, right? Today, we talk about Black Lives Matter. Every corporate office has a DEI agenda. But even back then in my 20s, because of perhaps my articulations with underserved populations, I began to realize that we really do need a more coherent narrative to allow representations because I fundamentally believe that children cannot see what they can't be. Or, or children can't be what they cannot see. So I think it's really important to put up positive representations because, I mean, growing up, I look into, I take my brother, for example, you know, he's a very famous Singapore actor, but when he goes to Hollywood, he could only play like the father character that gets beat up or, you know, the sidekick. You know, Asians were so misrepresented, even in popular culture. It's today that you can have a podcast, right? So even at a very young age, I was very sensitive to these issues of representation and lack of representation. I mean, today we talk about Crazy Rich Asians, but how many real Crazy Rich Asian movies are there, right? There's really Joy Luck Club and Crazy Rich Asians. 
so representation has always been a big thing for me and hence my work, my whole life's work in diversity, equity, inclusion. The other things that would drive me would then be understanding my positionality as, as a woman, as an Asian, as an entrepreneur and recognizing the challenges that I faced and hence wanting to create those frameworks for support for women like me, young women entrepreneurs like me, and also youth because of the arena that I work in, which is education and entrepreneurship. Like you said, I mean, I, I hold many hats, but fundamentally it's in education and entrepreneurship. I see that those formative years for young teens and youths are really important because it's either they get very cynical with life and they drop out of school and, you know, the proverbial going to a bad company, or they can really say, I want to make my family proud. I want to make my community proud. And then they find that that fire in your belly. I think that age where you are young, you're, you're hormonally charged, being able to guide those hormones in the right place is really powerful. And so that's also why I, I love to teach in a college and university because I really feel I can shape their spirit, not just their minds, but really their spirit in a sense of grit, right? So it's not just stuffing them with more knowledge, but giving them more sense of grit and resilience and, and life stories. And then finally, it is, you know, in every industry that, that I in, I, all, I often always try to uh, maybe make the first move. Maybe it's a very fine line between a fool and being courageous. But I always think that there is so much to be learned when you're first mover. So even with this um, weekend, when you just saw that Nicole and I just launched a food bank collaborative between Food Bank and Smoba Studios, where we are launching these NFTs to support feeding the needy in Singapore. The reason why we jumped into the metaverse, which I know is a conversation for later, is because we wanted to push the frontiers of the industry and tell the world that the food bank is going to be the first NGO to accept crypto. Again, we know that it's a risky move. Not everyone's going to like it. But I think when you are entrepreneurial and you dare to be the first, you learn and you have first movers advantage because you're going to be able to, to gain that much more experience from that. So it's a very long answer to your very short question, but it's, it's a good one. So I wanted to take the time to, to answer it. No, I think it's perfect, Loretta. I think what you're talking about here is really going back to the three P's, right? The people, purpose and possibilities. And I think the whole realm kind of yeah. revolves around the passion that you have, right? For young people, right? Yes. For the underrepresented, right? Basically those people. For youth, really, for underserved. Yeah. 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 Underserved and all that, right? So since you mentioned about the collaboration, right? With Kubek Singapore on Metaverse and N NFT, mm -hmm. let's take one step back mm -hmm. and let's talk about these terms, which I'm going to list now for you, for listeners out there. Also for NFT, blockchain, Bitcoin, crypto, metaverse, DAOs, web 3.0. So, so many terms, these terms are all over the place, right? So, so can you help us to unpack this a little bit in a layman way? Sure. I'm a layman myself. I think anyone that claims to be, you know, the master of the metaverse, probably the only person that does it is Mark Zuckerberg. But I think the rest of us are, we're all just learning. So I think let's, let's unpack it. I'll try and unpack those terms as well as I can. So I think if we want to understand the entire landscape, let's take it back to 2008, 2009, when there's a financial crisis. And I think you need to fundamentally understand that there's a, there's a huge demographic of folks that felt very let down by what we call centralized institutions. If you look back at that era, I mean, this was the era where people were putting their money in their pension funds. They believed in, you know, Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers. And there was a lot of blind faith in centralized institutions. And you recognize that in that era, a lot of faith was broken because people felt that I could never trust centralized institutions. These were pension funds. I think those kids, you know, grew up. So I think there's a huge demographic now that, be that believes that we need to have decentralized institutions because that, that faith is fundamentally broken. And around the same time, you begin to see the rise of this like Satoshi that people still can't actually pin down. But you see the rise of Bitcoin. You see the rise of an alternative currency. And it's a huge following because people started saying that, hey, you know, 
let's try something else. Let's, let's try something new. If the, the norm or the standard or, or the status quo is, is broken and we no longer believe in it, let's try something new. So already you see the seeds of these sorts of, you know, growth of a, an alternative. And then after that, once you have the blockchain technology, which fundamentally allows you to prove ownership. So it's a, it's a conflation of several technologies. So I'm not a technologist, so I can only explain it from a human so, a sociological point of view as opposed to a technologist point of view. And then you have the rise of technologies like blockchain that enable you to prove ownership, right? That enable you to sort of inscribe data and have a distributed ledger so that not everything is centralized and it is forever permanent and inscribed. So you cannot actually ch- go in there and change the data. So these things, again, are fundamentally very important because they have proof of ownership. And not just that, you can also potentially reduce issues like piracy, etc., which is great for the creative economy. Then, of course, you have another layer of technology that keeps building like non-fungible tokens. And now with non-fungible tokens, people are able to create you know, content, whether it's a music file, whether it's a JPEG, whether it's an art, right? And these lend itself quite easily to being made into NFTs. So you begin to have creators say, hey, if now we have a mode of exchange, a cryptocurrency, Right, we have a technology that allows us to prove ownership. Now, fundamentally, what creates value in the world? Why would someone buy a hundred thousand dollar Birkin bag or you know invest in a in a house? Fundamentally, it's because there's demand, there's supply. There must be be a willing buyer, a willing seller, which means there must be a little bit of market. Right, you must believe in the fundamental value of that object. And the other thing is that you know there must be a way to prove ownership because otherwise, if I'm going to buy this house and then you come in the next day and say you also own it, then we're not going to buy it, right? So I think these concepts are fundamental to real-world acquisition, but now the technology enables you to also prove ownership in the virtual world. So you can see the conflation of all these theories making it very exciting for people to say, huh, if I can now fundamentally own things in the virtual world in a way that when I was, let's say I'm younger, I'm priced out, I can't buy a house anymore. If I can create that asset in the virtual world and own that house and I can prove that I own it and someone else may want to acquire it, I could potentially create a market there, right? So, so you begin to see very smart people believing that, hey, this is franchise in the real world. I no longer, uh, the central banks may not want to bank me, for example, right? I, I'm, I can't, as a you know, young millennial, I can't buy a house. Let me now invest my time in the virtual world. And of course, then you also see that over time, lots of folks in the gaming community, which is a natural on-ramp to what we're going to talk about next in the metaverse, right? So already you have a huge population that's familiar with living their life online, right? They're they are buying virtual skins or they're buying, you know, tools, etc. In, in the games already. So this is already something that is quite native to them. So you, you almost have a conflation of all these factors. And then now you have this thing called the metaverse. But in order for me to maybe unpack the metaverse, let me unpack, let me go back in time to maybe explain folks that this is really more an evolution. So if you think about Web 1, Web 1 is really the age of information. So if you think of the age of information, meaning this is where the web was in its infancy. Who were the folks who could go on and put stuff online? It's not you and me. You couldn't have a podcast, right, Eric? I mean, you could only do that if you were a big company. So you could go in there as a company, as a corporate, and you put information out there, which is pre-packaged for consumers to look at, right? So you could go in there, you can ask Jeeves, or you can go to Bing, and then, or you can go to Yahoo or, or Google, but it's fundamentally put out there by corporate. So you could, the only thing that you could do is you could scroll to get information. But this information is sort of like pre-packaged from the corporates, right? So that's web one, where it's an age of information. We all got very excited about scrolling for information. But web two goes a step further. Web two is where you too could be a source of information. You too became a platform, right? It is what I call the age of interaction, right? It's the age that we're in now, 
right? Eric Chan has a podcast, you have a TikTok, you have an Instagram account, you have Facebook, and you become a social media platform. You become a content creator. And of course, now you have the ability to even monetize on that, right? Becoming an influencer and hopefully your podcast does very well. You get advertisements and then you, you, you can make a viable business, right? But fundamentally, these platforms are also not owned by you. You are just the creator. So if today, for example, Facebook's decide to pull that account, you actually, you have put a lot of content there, but you fundamentally own the train, but you don't own the railways. So that is Web 2. It is the age of interaction, right? Interactivity. Think of Web 3, which is the space that we are also into and we are headed into even more, right? It is it's evolutionary. It's not a hard stop. So think of Web 3 as the age of my three eyes. It is the age of immersion. We want to be more immersed, right? Just look at us now. We're trying to create tools to, to make our experience better, right? You're popping up books. You're having a nice mic. I mean, naturally, we want to make experience better. We want to make it more immersive. If you look into the, the spaces we're creating, right, whether it's sandbox I'm creating, I want to make the experience as seamless and as immersive as possible, whether it's Decentraland sandbox or other metaverses that we're working on, everyone wants to make it more immersive, right? Your whole avatar is there. You can feel that you are there, right? The sense of presence is really important. The next I is identity. Compared to Web 2, Web 3 community, I'd rather call them a community than user because I'd say Web 1, we're users, right? We use someone else's information. Web 2, we're kind of interacting, right? Web 3, I, I like to say that we're more like a community. Why? Because we we are now thinking, okay, we put so much content out there, we're content creators, but fundamentally, we don't own the platform. So I think lots of people are saying we want identity now. And the technology now allows us to actually prove our identity, right? With your NFTs and everything. So there's now more push towards wanting ownership. We want digital ownership because now if we can prove identity, the next thing is as human beings, we want to have digital ownership. So you're going to see more of that. And then the final thing is interoperability, right? Folks are going out there to build all these different metaverses, but the real key is to allow these metaverses to interoperate with each other, right? So again, for your listeners that, that are listening in, I would say that the metaverse is really about the three eyes, right? It's, it's really about having a more immersive experience, really having a, a greater sense of identity or owning your identity, so having digital ownership. And, you know, making sure that your identities are like interoperable. You don't have to be one person in Facebook, one person in Instagram and have so many different login accounts, but all these systems are interoperable. So you can be Eric Chan, you know, traversing all these different platforms. So I hope that sort of explains it uh, in, in as layman terms as I possibly can. Yes, I think, thank you for that. I think that is really layman and I can understand 100% of it, right? I love that point of proving digital ownership is extremely important. Right, like selling a house now is based on a paper, and you go to a a board, HDB, or, or whatever you know, private property kind of thing, right? But now we have blockchain to basically have that, have that chain to prove that digital ownership. And our three I's, right? Immersive identity and interoperability, right? So let's talk about immersive, right? And this is a good segue to uh small blur studios. Anyway, I saw videos of the Copperland in the sandbox, and it looks like an exciting theme park. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, so, so to take it back a little bit, Smoker Studios was really formed over COVID. My co-founder actually and I worked together before. So I ran a, a pretty big agency together with my, bro- my brother called the Activation Group. You know, at its height, we had about like 150 staff. So it was a, a, a sizable agency. And basically what we did was we're in the business of building brick and mortar retail stores, right? So we would help build like the DFS stores you see in Changi or even like King Power stores you see in Thailand or even the DFS stores you see in Hawaii. So our craft and our trade was very much in global travel retail, building up brick and mortar global travel retail stores around the world. However, we also, I think, began to realize that there has to be another 
business, right? And then I think it was timely that I left for Hawaii in 2015. And so it made me realize that, huh, is this something that I can do virtually? Because, you know, a lot of business in Asia, at least pre-COVID, was still done face-to-face, right? Clients would still rather meet you face-to-face and sort of touch you face-to-face. So when I left for Hawaii in 2015, I started to explore how could I still conduct business virtually even before COVID hit. That time, it was still not as popular, but I was already collaborating with some of my designers Virtue of the fact that I was now based in Hawaii, so we had to do this virtually. So we had to find modalities to communicate. And then, of course, fast forward to COVID, where we are all forced to virtually communicate. And then you see all these tools have always been around. I mean, Zoom was always there. It's just that, you know, nobody had really used it. So I think, obviously, you know, everyone says that already, but COVID really exacerbated our uptake of digital technology. So during that time, my then designer, which became my co-founder, connected. Because he stumbled upon this nothing burger thing called the sandbox. That time, nobody really knew about it unless you're a serious gaming nerd and you're like always on the space. And he is. And so he found this thing called the sandbox and he said, you know, I really want to put in a proposal for the Game Makers Fund because back then they were looking for builders or creators to come into sandbox. And so together we put in a proposal. And what we decided to do is because of our background as agency owners, I mean, I'm an agency owner, I'm a creator. I'm not a gamer. I don't have that background. Uh, we didn't immediately decide to create a game in Sandbox. Instead, we decided to use our real-world experience, which is to build, think of it like a virtual mall and bring brands into the space because that is my bread and butter. That is what I know how to do. So we decided to create this IP called Cobbleland, which is fundamentally like a big expo slash theme park. And it allows us to bring in brands specifically because of my belief in people, purpose, possibilities. I really wanted to support you know, solopreneurs entrepreneurs, mompreneurs, LGBTQIA, BIPOC populations, the the typical populations that may not be able to afford a brick and mortar store in real life, or you could be an emerging brand that doesn't have the kind of financial clout to go and splash out on a splashy, you know, web 2.0 campaign and you don't have all of that. So we thought it would be great to bring some of these emerging brands in as well as NGOs and nonprofits. So the food bank was a great example. So to date, we've already signed on, you know, a couple of local brands, Nicolor, which is a pet brand, Rebel, which is a digital fashion brand, and another two other digital fashion brands are joining us as well as food bank. The school is also coming on board. So basically think of Cobbleland as like a virtual capital land, if you like, right? With a, with a mission of aggregating brands that are very diverse, equitable, and inclusive. So that's Cobbleland. But while we are creating Cobbleland, our work also caught the interest of a lot of what we call 10K NFT projects. So a lot of these 10K NFT projects were, you know, flush with cash because they just minted their or sold out their 10K NFTs and they needed a utility for the community. So uh, several of them actually engaged us to build their worlds for them. So one of it is Tools of Rock. So Tools of Rock actually asked us to build their concert venue and we've actually launched the world's first concert venue. I think there's quite a lot of press on that as well. And then after that, in October, Mark Zuckerberg started announcing that he's going to change his name from Facebook to Meta. And after that, I think our business really like took off because everyone's like, oh my God, now we have to get to the metaverse, right? So we started getting a lot of requests for folks to help them build their, their walls in the metaverse. So that's really where we are at. So fundamentally, Smallville Studios is into world building. We create IPs and we also work on several uh, NFT projects. And right now, one of the other things we're doing is also consulting into more integrated projects that can take folks from, you know, the the gaming space right into the real world space. So those are also things that we're exploring. Wow. So this is extremely exciting, seriously, right? I mean, you talk about this metaverse and NFT projects and we bring brands together and also 
non-profits, NGOs, right? And those with social impact together as well. I think equitable, as, as you mentioned, I think these are all very exciting thing. And it's a quote that uh, by Helen Keller, like alone, we can do so little, but together we can do so much. I think that's what you're trying to do. Bring people, uh, bring people together, bring organizations together, companies together, right? And it, I'm glad to see that there's a lot of partners together with you on Cotterland. Let's switch gears a little bit, right? To writing. I know you're an author. Tell us more about writing and what drives you to write the books that you read. I think fundamentally, I'm a storyteller. Again, create, connect, communicate, right? I think once you begin to understand me, you realize that uh, I seem very complex, but then I can always break it down into these little uh, alliterations for you. And because I'm a creator, connect, connected communicator, I try different modalities of storytelling. So actually, my first book really came about because Marshall Cavendish actually asked me if I would like to publish a story of, you know, my, my adventures and my experiences. And I realized that, you know, I had some stories to tell and lessons to share. So I turned that into a book called Woman on Top, The Art of Smashing Stereotypes and Breaking All the Rules. And it actually became a bestseller in Singapore because I talked about some of my life lessons, right? Like, how did you survive depression or, or suicide? How did you become a, an entrepreneur? What is life like in Singapore as an artist, right? So I realized that people actually gravitated towards these stories because it was stories that were not heard. Again, let's put it in context. This is like 10 years ago. Right. We don't have like the TikTok and the kinds of platforms we have now where you have so much access to different content creators. But back then, when I first started, there wasn't all these modalities. So publishing, mainstream publishing and having a, a main publisher wanted to back my story was great. And it allowed people access. And I can even tell you that I had folks write to me and say, you know, your book changed my life. It was very inspiring to hear someone really different. So that in turn inspired me too. Right. Nobody ever said I write a book in order to become a billionaire. Nobody ever said that. Right. But really, if you fundamentally, what you want to do is to touch people's lives. I begin to find that very addictive. So that in itself then became a three book contract with Marshall Cavendish. So I wrote another book on another entrepreneur called Ellen Chu. And then later I wrote my third book called Madonna's and Mavericks. And now I became a more ambitious project where I interviewed, I think, 24 of Singapore's or 17 of Singapore's top leaders from a variety of fields from uh, like Theresa Gold, who is a Paralympian to Nicole who's a food banker, to our president, Halima Yaakob. So a whole spectrum of women that, that excel in everything that they do from arts to sports, to fashion, to business, to politics, right? So the whole spectrum, again, fundamentally redefining what success is because I didn't take the Forbes definition of success and not like how much money you make, but how much impact you create. So that's always been my trajectory to be as inclusive as possible. Then that led to more books. I started writing books when I went to Hawaii. Again, it was my way of staying connected learning about our community. So I wrote books on Hawaii. And now I'm back in Singapore and I'm in collaboration with Singapore Press Holdings to publish my new book called Mother. Uh, for those of you who are nerds and understand the Lacanian slash, I'm not going to go too much about it, but the Lacanian slash basically breaks the binaries of thought. The word mother has the word other in them. So I literally am featuring other mothers, right? So the book is really about celebrating non-traditional or non-heteronormative mothers, meaning instead of your standard, you know, mother, father, two kids, right, and a dog, I'm featuring LGBTQIA mothers, transgender mothers, lesbian moms, gay dads, incarcerated moms, migrant moms, terminally ill moms. In fact, one of them has already passed away in the course of the book and she wanted to share her story with me because she wanted it to be a gift for her daughters. I also have um, rape survivor moms foster mums, single mums, adoptive mums. I mean, and you'd be surprised, Eric, that all of them are all right here in Singapore. We don't feature their story. It's like, who ping fan the mama, you know, in that you don't see them 
talking about their stories because there's no platform for them to talk about their stories, right? So I really wanted to write this book to one, celebrate my own mother that I think raised as well and really celebrate all the other mothers that you don't see. I mean, like seriously, if you are a transgender dad, if you're an F, if you're an FTM, you know, you can't take your son to school without people scrutinizing you. They'll keep saying, you know, where's your wife? And it's like, oh, I'm, I'm, how does someone say I'm the mother and the father? How does someone say that in the Singapore education system? So I think these are the stories that I really wanted to, to feature because the more education there is, the less stigmatization there is. I think that's, that's really, yeah. So sharing for your passion on writing. So about this mother book, when is it coming out? The draft is completed. So we're hoping, actually today I'm meeting my editor. So I think we're going to try to, we were trying to make it for Mother's Day, but I think we will have your podcast be the front runner for the Mother's Day celebration. So I think we we'll probably try to publish it third or fourth quarter, but definitely this year, third or fourth quarter. Definitely looking forward to it and, and reading it as well. So wrapping up this episode, one final question. What advice would you give to your younger self, say 20 years ago? <laughs> Slow down. You're already doing enough. No, but I think I, I will say, keep doing what you're doing. For all those moments when you feel beaten down or challenged, those are actually your moments of growth. Those are actually the moments that shape you. Your perceived obstacles, challenges, failures are going to be ultimate success stories because those are the moments where you're most challenged and that's when the most growth happens. So keep going and you're going to be just fine. Thank you, Loretta. Just one last bonus question because... Sure. You remind me of Nicole Ng. I see. Yeah, a lot of people have told me that. A lot of people. It's hilarious. <laughs> okay, so I, I mentioned that she is a superwoman, but I think you are also a superwoman, right? I think so both of you are quite, you know, similar in a way. And, and, and I think the, the same response from that question is very similar. Advice, you know, that those who are breaking last ceiling and all that, right? To really encourage them, right? So... Tell us more about your, you know, your friendship with Nicole Ng, right? And, and how do you get to, how do you got to know her years ago? Bonus question. Yeah, yeah, she's like my mate, because in, in real life, she's a tie, right? And I'm mate, right? In, in real life. But then in terms of age, I'm tie and she's mate, right? But so I think we have this yin and yang thing. And we're both, I think, really have really strong yin and yang. Like, I can, I can feel it, right? We started, we knew each other from undergraduate days. I think we're a couple of years apart. So I think I'm a senior and she's a junior. So even back then, I knew of the work that she was doing. I think back then, her, her, her father had just gone into, she just come, come out of bankruptcy and really trying to build the business. And I think we had quite similar trajectories because I was also running a family business. She was also running a family business. We're also women, entrepreneurs, trying to make our mark 20 years ago, right? Like I said, today, there's more support. So I think what has always bonded us was that we always had a vision that what fuels us, she may say it in different terms and I'll say it in different terms, but what fuels me is people, passion, possibilities. The work that she does is in food insecurity or food because hers is a food business. Because I'm in education and in a creative, my work is always about creating space for diversity, equity, inclusion and representation by artists, entrepreneurs, young people. But fundamentally what fuels us is that we believe that yes, making money is important because you need to keep your team going. You need to be sustainable. But we always believe that there must be a reason. What is our end game? It fundamentally is to leave the world better than we found it today. As opposed to, let's keep making the next billion and the next billion is the next two billion and the next three billion. And, and that's why when we sit down and we talk, our first question is not always, okay, what's the ROI? What's the KPI? You know, what we, you know, how much are we going to make? But it's how much impact are we going to make? 
And I think that when you have your hearts, your heads and your minds in the right place, you are going to make all these like, incredible projects happen, right? And I think just the combination of our personalities as well, I think it just sort of either overwhelms people or I like to think hopefully it inspires them because we, we really encourage folks to think about a future that is not yet here. We're always pushing the boundaries of today to say, what can we do today to make tomorrow better? And we are not afraid to say, we don't have all the answers, but we are not afraid to take that first step. Come take it together with me and let's co-create this together. I think it's a very powerful invitation to anybody to come along on our journeys. And I think that's where Nicole and I are, are truly similar. Yeah. Fantastic. Awesome story. Thank you so much for sharing your good story with me personally and the listeners. It's a joy to have you on the show, Loretta. Thank you. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Our five C's. Yeah. Yeah, five C's. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.